Come on, what, what can't they do? So, uh, welcome again to Bethany in West Seattle. My name is Prentice. I uh, get the privilege to be a pastor here and to serve and to uh, walk alongside our entire church to see what God is up to. Uh, and so, for those of you that have been with us, we have been going through uh, essentially stories uh, in the Gospel of Luke, and we're calling this Encounters with Christ. And what we're seeing is uh, different uh, encounters that people are having with Jesus uh, and looking at those stories and wondering, okay, uh, what can we get out of that? What can we see? What can we learn about the nature of God? Uh, And what kind of hope and transformation does that bring into our own lives? And so uh, today uh, we are going through Luke uh, chapter 8, verse forty. Uh, through, I'm just going to read to 44, uh, and uh, well, the story will speak for itself. You'll notice that there's, there's two stories going on here, is a story of, of this father named Jairus, uh, whose daughter has been sick and died, uh, and on his way to, uh, to see Jairus' daughter, uh, he, Jesus runs into a woman who has been sick it says for 12 years. And so uh, let's read this. Uh, and it's in Luke chapter 8, again, verse 40 to 44. And the word of the Lord says this. Now when Jesus returned, uh, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Just then there came a man named Jairus, a leader of the synagogue. He fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, who was dying. As he went, uh, the crowds pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. And though she spent all she had on physicians, no one can cure her. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his clothes. And immediately her hemorrhages stopped. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word and what your word has to say to us this morning. God, we pray for uh, the many families and people that are on vacation. God, may you give them joy, memories, and laughter. On the other end of the spectrum, we pray for just so much unrest in our country. God, we pray for protests that are happening. We pray for counter-protests that are happening. Uh, particularly in D.C. God, would you just bring about safety and uh, may voices be heard. God, we pray for the fires that are going around. God, there's so much on our plates, even individually and collectively. And God, would you just bring us a sense of hope, uh, especially during times of hopelessness. We thank you that this word of this morning does just that. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me, let me start off by asking you a question. Have you ever, uh, as we were praying, have you ever been in a, what you would deem as a, a hopeless situation? Or, or maybe it's, it's not even just a hopeless situation, but perhaps a, a hopeless season. Have you ever been in a hopeless season in your life, where there seems like nothing can, can go right, and where it seems like everything is, in fact, is going wrong, or maybe it's a time of darkness or a time of grieving, a loss of a loved one, perhaps, a, a dream 
loss of a job, a relationship. Maybe there's an illness. Maybe, there, maybe there's addiction. Whatever it is, whatever you're going through, whether it's a situation or, or an entire season, the best word and really the only word that describes that is the word hopelessness. And if you've ever been in a situation or a season of hopelessness, if you can identify with any of these that I just asked you, I would urge you, and I urge myself, to really listen to what this story has to say of this little girl and this woman who has been ill. See, what happens is that Jesus on his way, meets with both of them and their families in these precise moments, in these hopeless and dark and lowly moments is the exact time that Jesus meets with them. And so we're going to talk about uh, this progress, this procession that, that I would say that today's all about. Today's all about this idea of, of hopelessness. Uh, of a lost hope. And if you're a note taker, uh, you can write this down. Uh, but the first thing we'll talk about is this idea of a lost hope. And, and what we often see is that in this sense of hope that's lost, what we see is also an identity that is lost. So we'll talk about a, a hope that's lost. And what happens oftentimes with the hope that's lost is an identity lost. And, and lastly, to find that hope is through none other than this idea of desperation, of desperation. And so let's talk about this sense of hopelessness, a hope that's lost. So what we see is that Jesus, in this story, is on his way to see He's on his way back for meeting with his disciples, from healing and teaching. So there's a reputation of what Jesus can do, of who Jesus was. He was a healer. Uh, many would see him as Messiah. The news wasn't quite out yet, but at the very least, people knew who Jesus was and what Jesus was capable of. And, and so here comes Jairus running over to Jesus, and, and he says, he says, Jesus, you need to get to my daughter because she, she's going to die. She's sick. And, and unless you come to her, because I know who you are, she's going to die. And, and I love Jesus' response because he says, okay, I'm going, I'm with you, Jairus. And suddenly this story, uh, though it is one story, there's, there's two acts. Uh, and it says, on his way uh, to heal Jesus, or to heal Jairus' daughter, he runs into a woman who has been, it says hemorrhaging, other translations will say bleeding, uh, for 12 years. Meaning she was having issues with, uh, with her menstruation for, for 12 years. And then after this story, if we, if we had continued reading, what we see is that Jesus encounters Jairus, uh, is on his way to, to see Jairus' daughter, uh, and then gets, I guess, interrupted uh, by this woman who needs healing, and Jesus meets her where she's at, and then goes back to the story of the little girl. And many commentators uh, call this the Mark, because these stories are in Mark and in Luke, called the Luke Sandwich. And so there's a lot going on here between these two stories, and we won't be able to understand uh, the significance of these two and how these two connect until we really understand the stories of the woman and this little girl. 
So let me just start off by uh, unpacking a little bit of, of this woman's story who, who, who it says that she's been bleeding for 12 years and not only has she been sick, having menstruation for 12 years, not only that, uh, but what happens is it's not just a physical issue, especially during this time, uh, but it's an emotional issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's a physical issue. You see, back in the first century, especially in the, near, in the ancient Near East, that blood of any sense was considered unclean. And especially if you were a woman going through her menstrual period cycle, uh, that you were also considered unclean because of the blood. And so during this time, uh, because you were considered unclean, or really this goes for anyone that was bleeding, uh, they were considered unclean. They, they couldn't go to the temple, which was the place of worship, which was uh, the place where they really believed that they met with God. Anyone that was bleeding, especially for this woman, they, they couldn't go there. And they couldn't participate in any religious ceremonies, which was a big aspect of their life, especially in the first century. Uh, and, and I would say the worst of all is that if you were bleeding, uh, you were considered unclean. Uh, and in Numbers and in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, what it says that when you were bleeding and, and unclean, if you touch somebody, then that person is also deemed as unclean. And, and so can you imagine this woman's life for 12 years? For 12 years, there was, there was no solution to this. It, it said that she saw uh, physicians and, and really spent all her resources and nothing could help. And, and in that backdrop, you can understand kind of the life and the attitude and the mentality that this woman was going through. Can you imagine uh, being considered unclean for 12 years, no one wanting to be around you, no one wanting to touch you, not even a hug, not even a handshake. And not only that, because if you were to be in contact with someone that's unclean, that would make you unclean, those that were unclean would have to go into the public square and declare that they were unclean, literally yell and tell people, I am unclean. I am unclean. I am unclean. And you can imagine how lonely and isolated this woman was. I mean, she was on the margin. She was considered an outcast, unholy, unclean. And then we get to see the story of Jairus' daughter who was dead. Her dream of growing up and being somebody, gone, completely gone. Any dreams and hopes or aspirations from the parents that had for their daughter, gone. A chance to hug and kiss and play and teach. This daughter, gone. It was all over. And everybody, for good reason, believed that Jairus' daughter was actually dead. In chapter 8, verse 52 it says, they were all weeping and wailing for her. They were all weeping and wailing for her. Anytime the Bible talks about weeping, and especially the word wailing, uh, it is a typical way of mourning when a loved one dies in this time. And in Matthew, uh, who also has this story in his gospel, writes that there were flute players when Jesus arrived 
as with custom, that musicians would be hired to play in funerals. See, it was no accident that these two stories were combined. It was actually a brilliant combination by the, uh, by the gospel writers. And because though they are different stories, they all share the same and powerful experience that the gospel writers want to share with the readers. And it's the experience of absolute and utter hopelessness. A woman who has been sick for 12 years, completely outcasted from society, considered completely unclean and really unworthy of touch, of community, of friends. I mean, talk about a sense of hopelessness. This was her life. And then we see Jairus uh, goes to, to see his dead daughter. And, and there was even a, a funeral that was happening. There was weeping and wailing. There was no turning back. Jairus's daughter, for what they understood and what they knew, was dead. And so these two stories, uh, though they are different, uh, they are expressing the same sense of hopelessness that they're both uh, experiencing. And, and I would say, as I ask you the question, uh, let me ask you again, have you ever experienced a deep sense of utter hopelessness? Can you relate to any one of these stories? How many of you are going through this time right now? Can you even say it out loud, what you're going through? And maybe this morning is an opportunity for us to, to say it out loud, to name it, to bring it to light, as we talked about even last week. And, and I would argue that this story of hopelessness between Jairus and his family and this daughter and this, and this woman who was sick for 12 years is not foreign to any of us. We've all sensed and felt and experienced a sense of utter hopelessness and darkness as if nothing Will ever be good again? Fortunately, oftentimes we're wrong. But nonetheless, we have experienced this. And the problem, uh, oftentimes, when we experience this sense of utter hopelessness, uh, as we see, is that we also experience an utter sense of loss in our identity, a loss of hope. Uh, oftentimes leads to a loss of identity. In chapter 8, verse uh, 44, it says that uh, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his clothes, and immediately her hemorrhages stopped. What we see is that this woman who was bleeding for 12 years, who've, who's been shunned out of community, who, who had no friends, who where no one wanted to touch. She was so scared. Can you imagine? She was so scared to be around people. And in this last ditch desperate move, she says, and she believes, all I have to do is kind of in a sneaky way, just touch the edge of his cloak. And she says, then I know I will be healed. The sad part of that whole image that I see is that she felt so unworthy so unclean, so pushed out and on the margins that she felt like she couldn't even have, an, have a conversation with Jesus. I mean, here comes Jairus. It says a leader of the synagogue comes up and says, Jesus essentially has a conversation. Jesus, 
I need you to come and heal my daughter. She's sick and she's going to die. And we see even in previous chapters, even last week and two weeks ago, there's demons that have conversations with Jesus. People that are possessed having conversations with Jesus. And we see this woman who has been so uh, conditioned to be isolated and considered so unclean, lives that out in who she is and doesn't even believe she can have a full-on conversation or even a request to Jesus, even though she knows that he can heal her. She comes up behind in a sneaky way and just touches the edge of his cloak because she had faith. She believed that that would heal her. And then it says, and I can just imagine this, says that there was fear in her eyes and she came trembling. When Jesus says, all right, who touched me? Who touched the edge of my cloak? It says that there was fear in her eyes and she came trembling. And I would imagine thinking she was in trouble. How many times has she been in trouble interacting with people? Just wanting contact with people. In this Greek word, uh, tremble, is the word tremos, uh, and it literally means shaking in fear. She was shaking in fear, again, because she's already convinced herself that this was now who she was, a woman who was sick, who's been bleeding for 12 years, who's, who, who can't even be in public, who is unworthy of contact and physical touch, who is unclean. This is the identity of, uh, of what she adopted for herself due to her brokenness. This is the way others saw her. This is the way she believed that even Jesus saw her. <clears throat> and as I was uh, doing my studies and reading, I came across uh, this author who she wrote this post on behalf or in the eyes and the lens of how this woman would have seen herself and maybe how she would have written her story. And let me just read this to you. I'll put it on the screen so you can follow along. Uh, But listen to these words and try to imagine yourself as this woman. Here's how she may have sounded. She would say something like this. Now everyone knew I was unclean. No one could touch me, and everything I touched or anywhere I sat immediately became unclean. No shopkeeper would allow me near his wares. No housewife would allow me to pause to catch my breath on her doorstep. I begged as best as I could for occasional bite of bread, as my condition even barred me from the profession most desperate women end up turning to. No one wanted me. So like I said, I got used to the bleeding and the weakness, but the loneliness got to me. No one's touched me for nearly 12 years. Oh, and I've been spat upon and received the occasional kick from the daring young boys, but but no hugs, no shoulder to cry on, no sister to help braid my hair. And it's been that long since I've been allowed in the synagogues as well to raise my voice in praise to God or hear the precious words of the Torah read. I am as invisible and worthless 
to God as I am to everyone else. Could you imagine what she was going through for 12 years? An utter loss of hopelessness. And the worst part of of this loss of hopelessness due to her condition was his very last line. She says, due to that, I am as invisible and worthless to God as I am to everyone else. You see, when we get to a sense in a place of hopelessness, we end up adopting this false identity due to that sense of hopelessness. What we do oftentimes, and what she did, and what we've seen in this story is that she herself becomes, or believes that she becomes, the sum of her mistakes, the sum uh, of her brokenness, the sum of her illness, the sum of the decisions that may have been made. And, And oftentimes, don't we do the same thing? We oftentimes boil our own identity down to become the sum uh, of our experiences. And and when we do that, we end up just like this woman who says, I am invisible and worthless to God as I am to everyone else. And and again, we see Jairus' daughter was dead. The body was to be mourned. The body of uh, of his daughter was dead, no longer alive. This was accepted as a fact. There was no turning back. There was no undoing. There was no healing. There was no other outcome that was fathomable besides the fact that Jairus' daughter was dead, period. That's it. And when Jesus says, uh, in this chapter, he says, she's not dead. She's just asleep. You're wrong about what she is and her condition. She's not dead. She's asleep. And they thought that was so ridiculous that they even laughed. That they laughed. That, that, that no other identity of this little girl besides dead was possible. So much so that if anyone else offered a different identity upon her, it was laughable. In verse 52 it says, They were all weeping and wailing for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. Verse 53 it says, Then they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead, knowing that she was dead. No, Jesus, this girl is dead. That's it. There's no turning back. That is essentially who she is. She is dead. And it's so easy when we look at these two stories for ourselves to, again, define ourselves by our deficits, by our weaknesses, by our hopeless situations. And even us too, like this woman, like this family for this little girl, somehow we end up becoming the sum of our mistakes, our brokenness, those deficits, those illnesses, those addictions, whatever you think that brings you hopelessness, oftentimes we feel like that becomes our identity, that is the sum of who we are. I mean, last week I talked a little bit about this paralyzed man in John chapter 5, who was as a reminder, uh, who was sick, who was paralyzed, and all he had to do was get to that pool, that spring, that they believed would heal those illnesses. 
And there was a sense of so much hopelessness. It says for years and years and years, this, this paralyzed man uh, just could not get to the water. Though he was near, could not get to the water, that would heal him. And, and the f- ironic part was Jesus encounters him, and it should be obvious, but Jesus asks the question, do you want to be well? I mean, if you're sitting here reading about the story of this man's condition, the obvious answer is yes, of course. He's paralyzed. He's, he's near the water. He wants to be healed. He wants to be made well. Yet Jesus asks him, do you want to be made well? Because the reality is, the answer was, the answer was probably no. He, essentially what happens, he kind of gave up. He accepted who he was and his ailment and just said, well, I I quit. I stopped going. I'm no longer attempting to get well. I'm no longer attempting to get to the water. That could heal me. This is my life. This is who I am. I mean, have we ever felt that? That because of our experiences, because of the mistakes, because of the things that we've been through, we just say, you know what? I don't need healing. There's no turning back. This is what it is, as Jairus' family said. As a woman who's been isolated for 12 years, this is just who I am. I mean, have we, have we done that same thing with our own experiences? Just accepted that as, as that is who we are. I remember back when I was uh, in college, I was a little bit of a perfectionist. And, and even around my house, for those of you that have been around or been around me, I'm a little bit OCD about certain things. Uh, and when I was in college, I was really OCD uh, about my grades, as many of you probably can share that experience. Uh, and I remember these moments where I would get an exam back or like a, an essay back uh, and my hope is that I would have gotten an A because I worked hard and I did this and that and I studied. And I would sometimes get it back in. Believe it or not, it wouldn't always be an A. Uh, sometimes it would be an A minus, or sometimes it would be a B, or sometimes it would be a C, or sometimes even worse. And I remember I would get that paperback or that test back, and just first thing I realized it wasn't an A, it was it was a C or a B, and I remember my, my attitude, it just, my demeanor just sank. And I remember feeling this sense of hopelessness for, the, for my grades and for, for that class where I would just say, you know what, I'm done. I'm done studying. I'm just going to kind of coast now. There's really no turning back. I got a C on this paper. I wanted an A. I didn't get it. And so I'm just going to kind of essentially give up on that class. And when the reality is, what I should have done is not studied less, but, but studied more. What I should have done is go to office hours, uh, talk to the professors, uh, talk with some friends, have study groups, do whatever it took uh, to get that grade up. But instead, I kind of accepted that, that bad grade and said, all right, you know what, there's no turning back. This is just how I'm going to end the class. This is the end of the story of this class for me. This is it. And oftentimes we do the same thing. We do the same thing with circumstances and experiences in our lives. And so what we see in both of these stories is that 
They didn't give up. They didn't do what I did when I got a bad grade. This woman in Jairus, uh, whose daughter was dead, they didn't just say, you know what? This is it. This is just going to be my fate. Yes, she's dead. That's a fact. I accept it. I'm going to move on with life. This woman didn't say, you know what? I was sick for 12 years, and it even said, I've seen physicians, and you know what? Nothing worked. That's it. This is going to be who I am. Though oftentimes we are tempted, though they could have easily been tempted to say, you know what, this is the end of the story. That's it. This is how I'm going to live forever, and this is how I'm going to die. Same thing with my test. All right, I got a bad grade on my test. I got a bad grade on this paper. That's it. I guess this is it. There's no turning back. I'm not going to work on it. This is it. But what we see with, the, with Jairus especially and this woman says, you know what, this is not going to be the end of my story. Even though there's a loss of hope, and even though there has been a loss of hope that led to a loss of uh, our identity, their identity, what we find is that both of them become desperate for more. Really, there's no other way or no other word that describes what happens, that they were desperate for more. They said there must be more than this. And the lost hope is found through desperation. This woman who was sick for 12 years put everything on the line by touching Jesus uh, on the edge of his cloak. She could have been in trouble. She, she, Jesus could have turned back for all she knew. Jesus could have said, how dare you touch me? How dare you come around me? How dare you make contact with me? Because after all, that's probably have been her life experience. In verse 47 of chapter 5, it says, uh, after uh, Jesus, who touched me, she kind of confesses. It's almost like when you're in trouble, she's like, all right, it was me. Because it's almost like uh, someone who's been traumatized by so much pain and so much hurt. Uh, kind of like a, like a kennel dog, like, who touched me? Oh my gosh, I'm so I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And it says in verse 47 that uh, she couldn't keep silent. It says that she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. It's like, okay, I'm so sorry. And it says she was in fear. She was shaking. And she had to explain herself. Well, well, okay, let me just explain. Please, let me just explain. This is why. And what I believe and what many believe is that this question of, uh, of who touched me not like Jesus didn't know, was not for his own benefit, but it was actually for her. It was for her benefit to, to, to declare her faith, to declare what had happened, to declare her desperation. Jesus wants this woman to publicly confess her faith. And it's not because Jesus has some kind of ego but because it does something internally to the woman as she confesses and says out loud and owns what happened. Notice that uh, it, says, it says that she declared uh, what, what happened and why. It says why, why. She explained why she touched the edge of his cloak. She didn't explain or tell the people what happened after the fact that it happened. But she was telling people why she wanted to touch his cloak in the first place. Jesus had her declare to herself and to her own community 
that she desperately knew that there was more to life than the hopelessness that she was currently experiencing. I have a friend right now <coughs> who's doing this exercise that was given to her by her, <coughs> by her life coach or her, her counselor. And she was explaining to me that part of the exercise <coughs> excuse me, that uh, her counselor had her do is that every morning she has to look in front of the mirror uh, and name out loud, say out loud three things uh, that she appreciates about herself. And, and really, specifically, three things that she finds good or worthy or beautiful about her body. Because uh, some context, part of the reason why they were meeting is because some issues with she, she had with her own body. And so uh, the, the remedy, the, the suggestion was to go in front of the mirror and to say out loud three things physically about herself that she can declare, that she sees. And what, what happens when she was publicly and out loud declaring the three things that she finds beautiful about herself, not because she has an ego, not because she has to, you know, puff herself up, because when she names it, something happens. When she says it out loud, something happens. Where lies are pushed away and truth starts to enter. And she starts to actually believe that about herself. And in the same way, uh, I believe that Jesus had her publicly confess out loud what had happened, and and not just what happened, but why she wanted to touch Jesus' uh, edge of his cloak in the first place. And so she can say to herself that there's more to this story, that healing can happen, that I can live a better life, that God actually has for me to live a life, not just life, but to live life abundantly, to thrive, to actually say that out loud is the reason Jesus says, well, what happened? Say it. Say it out loud. Own it. A prominent leader risked his own reputation. It said that that Jairus was was a leader in the synagogue. That was no accident of why Luke and Mark and Matthew wrote what they wrote. He was a prominent leader in the synagogue. He was a prominent Jewish leader that everyone looked up to. And what did he do? He risked his own reputation, and again, not by accident, it says that this Jewish leader in the synagogue also fell to his knees. And at this time, only slaves and servants and people of lower uh, uh, status fell to their knees. People even laughed because what they thought Jesus was doing was they thought that Jesus was giving a prognosis. Little did they know that it was actually a diagnosis. Both this woman And even Jairus desperately knew that there was more to life than the story that was written for them. There was more. And Jesus honored that and brought healing and brought life into those desperate and hopeless situations. And in both cases, in both cases, Jesus says to both of them a, a, a rendition of your faith 
has healed you. So he says to the woman, your faith has healed you. He says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. So faith uh, and belief is the same Greek word, pistos, meaning faith. It's the same word he says to both of them. Your faith has healed you. And then he says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe, a.k.a. only have faith. Do not fear, only have faith. Because he understands and they understood that the reality is fear and faith cannot coexist. So he says, even in your hopeless situations, so hopeless that there seems to be no other outcome besides death, so hopeless that there seems to be no other outcome besides just being isolated for the rest of your life, even in those moments of fear, cling on to the faith that God has for us, that God is not done writing the story. That we become so desperate saying, God, I have faith that there is more. Can we have that kind of faith? That no matter what we're going through, we can say, you know what? This is not the end of the story. And I will desperately, no matter how many times lies try to pull me over to, to a different story, no matter how experiences, no matter how painful they are, no matter how many times I feel and hear lies of the devil, I'm going to desperately hold on to the promise that God has made for me. And that takes courage. One author puts it this way, that life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. And so what we have to understand about faith is is faith is less about knowing a single outcome. We believe faith is like knowing a single outcome. It's not about knowing a single outcome, but it's about expectancy. That God is up to something and that God is still moving. We don't always know how. We don't always know when. But we desperately, desperately cling on knowing. We move forward knowing. We believe in the truth knowing that God is for us and that God is moving. That God is working. That God is healing. That's what faith is all about. I mean, we have, we, we demonstrate every faith every single day without knowing exactly how and when. When you guys came and started your car this morning, you had faith that your car is going to make it to church. Some more faith than others. Uh, but you, you have faith that the, the car is going to make it to church and, and come back. Do you, if I ask you how exactly a car works, can you, break me, can you break it down to the specifics? Maybe some of you, but majority of you guys can't. I know I can't, but I have faith that this car is going to get me to church and back. It, well, I believe, uh, though I don't know how the earth works, I know that it rotates. I know that there's going to be night and day. I know that there's going to be seasons. Do I know exactly how uh, the science works? I, I don't. But I have faith I'll wake up the next morning. Now, I don't exactly know how the body works, but I know that I'm breathing, and I know right now, for me, I'm healthy. And I have faith, again, I'm going to go to sleep and wake up in the morning. Do I know exactly how my body works? For me, the answer is no. But I have this expectancy. I expect my car to take me there and back. I expect uh, for there to be night and day because the, the earth is rotating. I expect myself to wake up the next day because my body, that's the way it works. 
And what we see between this woman and Jairus is that they had this level of faith. Not just this faith because they knew what was going to happen, because essentially they really didn't, but they expected God to move. And so I want us to even take a moment. I'm going to actually invite the worship team up as we, as we reflect and respond to God. Where in life do you feel hopeless? Where in life do you need God to show up? Because God will show up. Have faith. Do not fear. Have faith. And what faith means is not knowing the outcome. What faith means is, you know what? I don't know how. I don't know when. But, but I know and I believe in the promises of God that God will never leave me nor forsake me. That God will show up. And I love this part. It says, uh, and I don't want to gloss over this. It says that Jesus calls this woman daughter. This is a big deal. Jesus is calling her family, giving her personhood, giving her dignity. You are no longer, he says to her, the bleeding woman. You are no longer the sick woman. You are no longer the isolated woman. You are my daughter. God said the same thing about Jesus when he just got baptized. He, God calls Jesus, you are my son, whom I love and whom I'm well pleased with. And many of us in our hopeless situations, we've adopted that hopeless name. And we could all f- fill in the blank. I am fill in the blank. And what Jesus is saying to all of us is even in those moments, even in your mistakes, even in your hardships, even in your hard seasons, even in your hopelessness, you are no longer fill in the blank, whatever that is. You are no longer that. You are the son, the daughter of God, who God loves, who God is well pleased. And Jesus makes you whole. But be desperate. Be desperate and cling on to that hope that the story that you're living isn't the end of the story, that there's more and more and more. And in desperation, we know that. And we cling to that and allow God to rewrite our stories and our identity. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much that you love us that no matter what we've done, no matter what mistakes we've made, no matter what season we're going through, we're not defined by that. What we are defined by is you calling us your son, your daughter, who you love and who you are well pleased with. May we live into that. May we believe that. And may that bring us healing and joy and transformation. Speak to each and every one of us in our time of response. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.